This is my journey, inspired one story at a time. A library of leaders was created. It began as a journey to learn. As time went on, it began to grow. All it needed was a platform, and this podcast was created to listen, to inspire, to share. I am a storyteller, and this is my journey. Welcome to another episode of Profiles in Leadership. I am your host, Steve Anderson, and today our guest is Chris Massis. Chris is the Chief Executive of the Royal Australian College of Medical Administrators and the Director of St. George Consulting, a boutique advisory agency specializing in strategy, management, governance membership, and allied health. His career has focused on service-based organizations across a variety of sectors, including healthcare, finance, and professional sport. He has in-depth leadership experience, knowledge, and governance exposure of high-performing effective and relevant service-based organizations with an Asia-Pacific footprint. Chris has held senior positions at the Bob Jane Corporation, St. Kilda Football Club, CPA Australia, Australian Physiotherapy Association, and Advent Health. His current board portfolio includes Chairman of BMS Risk Solutions. He is also a non-executive director of Osteopathy Australia, he is a non-executive director of the American Physical Therapy Association. He's on the Standards Council for Exercise and Sports Science in Australia. And he is a, clin- he is a clinical and community council on Southeast Melbourne Primary Health Network. And he's also a member of the Doctor of Physiotherapy Course Advisory Committee at the University of Melbourne. In addition, he is the former chairman of the Allied Health Professionals Australia. Chris has completed a Bachelor of Applied Science, Graduate Diploma in Sports Business, an MBA, the AICD Company Director's Course, the Executive Program in International Management at the Stanford Graduate School of Business, and delivering value through digital programs at the University of Oxford. Chris is the first ever public member of the American Physical Therapy Association's Board of Directors. He brings a, a, a wealth of knowledge of being on boards and, and how to govern and uh, how to be a, a good board member. And uh, it just brings a different perspective uh, to the board so that uh, we can make sure that um, we in this country as a profession are looking at things um, globally and also things as a whole. So uh, I know that uh, the members on the board have been extremely pleased with his uh, participation on the board. And I think it's really interesting to get some different perspectives. And Chris has a very unique perspective in the sense that he is not a trained physiotherapist. Uh, He is uh, extremely knowledgeable about the profession and has a lot of exposure about the profession. So he brings his knowledge of that profession, but also as a layperson uh, and not trained as a professional in healthcare. So I, I just think uh, not only is his perspective unique in the sense that he has his uh, Australian exposure, obviously, and also the global exposure, but now he's helping the American Physical Therapy Association look and see what they're doing and why they're doing it and just giving a, a great perspective. So I know that um, he's well respected in that regard, and I really look forward to sitting down with him today and, uh, and uh, picking his brain and, and seeing what he thinks about our profession and about the profession globally. So uh, without further ado, let's jump right in and have a nice discussion with Chris Massis. Chris, welcome to the program. It's really great to have you on today. Thanks, Steve. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you today. So let's just start with your journey. Uh, You know, let's just talk about uh, you're an Australian. Uh, I'm talking to you from Melbourne, Australia today, I believe. And uh, uh, so did you grow up in a medical or healthcare family? How did you discover physiotherapy and how did you get into the profession? Yeah, look, thanks thanks for for that. I am based here in Melbourne, Australia, um, and I do apologize in advance for my accent or if I do speak too fast. Look, my physical therapy or or physiotherapy or even healthcare journey is quite a recent one. I, I, I fell into the profession in late 2010. Um, prior to that, my professional background has really been based in uh, service-based or profession 
based organizations. And so prior to that, a lot in the, the finance and accounting space and also in uh, professional sport. Um, towards the end of that, uh, that area in my career, I was given the opportunity to become uh, the chief executive of the uh, what's called here the APA, the Australian Physiotherapy Association. So I, was, I really commenced my, I guess, C-suite leadership journey um, in late 2010 when I was asked to, um, to look at the organisation, not only from the profession's point of view, but also as a member-based organisation that really was in a time of, um, I guess, uh, uh, it, it, was, it was almost like floating in space. It wasn't really relevant. Uh, it wasn't growing. It wasn't shrinking. It was just there. And so the board at the time are really keen to, to look at someone that was probably contemporary, looking at innovative ways of moving forward, um, not only as an organisation but the profession, really engaging um, a profession, looking at the demographic. And then from there, um, that was a, a really enjoyable time Firstly, very fulfilling, and that really exposed me to not only to the physiotherapy profession, but also healthcare in general, not only in Australia but um, internationally. Uh, physiotherapy and healthcare in Australia is well regarded internationally, particularly where we are located towards Asia Pacific. But as you know, Steve, um, physiotherapy tends to have great global connection, then you do meet so many people, not only at conferences and meetings, um, but now across the internet. So um, that's where it started. From there, I was really um, fortunate to, to expose myself to other areas, such as uh, being the chair of uh, an allied health group here in Australia as an umbrella, um, and then from there, a whole range of other subcommittees and boards that I can talk about a little bit later. So you can't come at it. You're, you're not uh, a physiotherapist yourself. You come from the business or leadership uh, side of things and, um, and just uh, became um, known to physiotherapy through your work with that organization. That's right. I'm not a clinician by trade per se. Um, I studied, of all things, I studied, um, studied physical education in my undergraduate degree. Uh, but as you say, I, I, um, I did a major in, in marketing and business. Um, and I chose that vocation after university, um, but have fallen back into, I guess, health and healthcare. Yeah, yeah, that, that's great. Now, you were the first public member of the American Physical Therapy Association board. So what was your biggest surprise about that organization, and, and, and what have you learned about being on that board? Yeah, look, I obviously knew of the American Association during my time um, with with the Australian Association. Certainly from afar, it looked um, large, well-resourced, um, very engaged. Uh, and the opportunity arose, and once I went through the process and spoke to several board members as part of that selection, um, it really dawned on me that there were so many similarities, while structurally different as a federated model, um, and different healthcare systems and the like. Ultimately, member-based organisations are there to um, really create value for their communities. And their communities range from their members, uh, the, the profession as a whole, the community, uh, policy makers, a whole range of different audiences. So my, um, my observations from, a, from afar was this is a well-put-together organisation. When you do step onto the board, you can see there are some, um, I guess, handcuffs, if you like, or some things that hold organisations back, and Australia is no different. Uh, history and legacy tends to really put handbrake on innovation, and this is, these are just my opinions, Steve, as well. I think a handbrake on innovation and uh, ways forward. I think all large organisations can get caught up in uh, what they've done in the past and successful things in the past, but those things aren't necessarily uh, the best things to look forward and to progress. And so what I'm really keen to explore with, with the board, and we are all on the same page, is really to expand our, our membership and really looking at how do we increase that, uh, that market share of, of PTs that are members of the association. Rough figures at the moment, I, I believe a, a third of the profession 
uh, uh, formal members of the association. But as we know, in this new subscription economy, the younger generations engage in activities differently. And it's not a, a set and forget annual membership for life anymore. The generational trends, the behaviours, the characteristics of all the, um, not only the millennials, the, 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 the Zs and the alphas coming through is different. And so an organisation has to be open and responsive to those different market forces. It's not a one size fits all anymore. And is that similar to uh, in Australia, only a third of the physiotherapists are part of the uh, member organization or is, is that unique to the US? No, I think uh, we in Australia it's a higher percentage. We One of my core focuses during my tenure was to really increase that market share. Um, and that's not an easy thing to do, nor is it a quick um, a quick fix. You need to commit to that over a journey um, to really not only demonstrate value, but showcase uh, the, the value of the collective of the association. So whilst individual transactions and connection is about what's in it for me and the value add, part of the challenge is uh, showcasing and, and actually demonstrating the value of the collective and what difference that can make not only to the profession, but to research, to education, to policymakers, to funding and to the consumer. And that's a real storytelling exercise over a very long period of time. And if you deviate from that, um, your, your vulnerability show, and I think uh, it's not as compelling that when it's um, fixed, committed and united in, in a voice. Um, so whilst we have a, a higher market share here in Australia, um, and that's come over a long period of time, I, I think the principles and the fundamentals are, are, are quite the same. But for me, I think the sheer scale in the US um, provides greater opportunity for um, engagement activity um, and really PT, um, PT power and influence because of the sheer scale. So what do you think uh, the... You know, as you uh, mentioned, the subscription society that we live in today, and, and people are always looking for that value, and, and it's less likely just to be loyal out of loyalty's sake. Um, what do you think uh, they're looking for in value in, in a member organization like uh, APTA, and what do you think that we could do better to increase that uh, uh, only a third, you know, get that, that, get that higher? What, what do you think we need mm. to, to focus on? Yeah, look, there's, there's, there's several layers to that. Obviously, you have the, I guess, the what I call the transactional value. So if I'm giving you so many inputs in, what outputs am I getting? Is that a net gain for me personally? So we're, we're all humans and we have that behaviour. If I am foregoing uh, $1, am I getting $1 or more in return? So that's probably a very simple transaction. Uh, but, but for me, and you look at societal trends and also where we've been in the last three to five years and we know the, the world has changed permanently, I think there's a real trend back to community and finding your tribe and belonging. And in my view, associations across the world were great during COVID to really be the trusted source of information. Uh, at a time of uncertainty and so much conflict uh, and conflicting information at the time. Um, certainly down here in Australia, whilst there was so many different messaging because policy was being done on the run, um, the peak bodies and the associations of all professions were distilling all that and then crystallising that in very bite-sized chunks, easy to consume information for their members. So the factor of trust and being part of a community are, are a big um, big drivers in my view. If you take the example of the sharing economy such as Uber and Airbnb, that only thrives in on trust. You need to trust um, a random driver in a random car taking you somewhere. You need to trust someone hiring your property for a week to look after it. And again, uh, peak bodies should really promote, showcase, demonstrate that they are trusted uh, institutions and they are community-based for like-minded people. So whether that's um, a PT in orthopaedics or whether that's just identifying as a PT 
or is it a physical therapy assistant that wants to belong um, and be part of uh, be part of change? So for me, that value piece is not only the the, the transactional uh, per se, but it's also what can I what value can I get for my network, for my community, and ultimately to help me be a better PT, a better person in healthcare, a better contributor for my employer. Do you have uh, physical therapist assistants in Australia uh, like we do here in this country? Yes, we do. It's not a, it's not a mainstay at the moment. There has been uh, resistance to um, an assistant model down here for a long time. But like in the US, our workforce challenges are significant in terms of attracting and retaining talent. And the, the need for healthcare is so abundant that... Uh, workforce innovation and the way we uh, look after clients, patients, consumers, whatever the term is used, um, and that throughput is needed. We just need critical critical mass. And looking at different ways of doing that via the assistant model and working at the top of your scope and scope of practice are, are critical. And so that's growing down here. Um, but I but I'm certainly aware of the model in the US and um, and. I, I guess, the, the opportunities to really engage that profession. So when we look at the, um, uh, you know, the differences uh, between, our, between our countries, uh, what do you see are the major differences between Australian physiotherapists and uh, American physical therapists? And, um, you know, just kind of give us your impression, having uh, witnessed both of them from pretty uh, intimate levels. So what, uh, what do you think are the major differences uh, between the two? Mm. Yeah, look, uh, uh, there are, um, I guess the similarities are the, the passion, uh, the clinical education, the US uh, research and education and the Australian research education, the technical skills are, are incredible. Uh, look, the systems we operate in are, are clearly different, which has produced differing characteristics at an individual level. Uh, our system down here, we have... Uh, uh, a private practice uh, skewed profession. However, it did start with uh, a very hospital-based profession and we uh, received or were awarded direct access in 1976. Um, so that created a, 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 new, a new push into private practice and private ownership and, and primary care and community physiotherapy when historically it used to be under the doctor rule and in hospitals. Um, and so, so our, our opportunities to get physiotherapy funded in the community whilst we have private health insurance and some Medicare, largely driven by the, the private payers and, and paying for that service. So we do have that culture here. Um, what we don't have is the, the, uh, a large scale critical mass and where the US is different is certainly the, the corporatization, if you like, or, or private equity coming into the profession, given uh, where the trajectory of healthcare is going and the opportunities for, for investors to, to make a return on that. That is that is certainly at a different scale in the US. Uh, look, I, I understand that not all states have direct access, well, but, but that is changing. And so that, that creates challenges with for me, uh, scope of practice and being under um, a, a referrer's, um, uh, I guess, rule or jurisdiction or, you know, working with the medical profession. I can say that now. I, I have a, a, another uh, chief executive role for, for doctors, for chief medical officers and directors of medical services. And so I think the challenge there is the... The, the hierarchy, the medical hierarchy and the respect and the value that allied health and, and physical therapy can provide to the system. I don't think that's that message is compelling or it's pushed hard enough. So I think that's where the blue sky is. If we can uh, work with the key referrers and, and the medical fraternity on the, the benefits of physical therapy for, for all patients and consumers... Um, that's where we'll get the biggest, um, the biggest, I guess, push, and that's where the needle will shift a lot quicker than, I, I guess, the, the current models of um, command control, if I can say that. So, would you see that in uh, so your exposure in the United States now, and you see what the private equity firms and money coming in and 
kind of uh, making you know uh, medicine more corporate and, and for profit and so on. Do you do you see that as a positive, or when you look back in your Australian colleagues that haven't got to that level yet, uh, is there caution there in your mind? I think there's a role for all models to play in a in a system. Um, I I don't subscribe to one is better than the other or uh, one does not work. I, I think there's uh, you want choice. You want choice of the consumer. There is a role to play for um, you know a, a profit uh, a profit driven purpose if you like. But there's also a role to play for 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 the other traditional models of healthcare. I think the issues of you know the health of society is so vast and so large that you need all models in in the in the market to ensure that it, it covers it, it provides choice and options for for people being involved so whilst i understand the natural inclination particularly of a profession like physiotherapy or mpt to say oh, that the corporates are coming in uh, profit making is bad on healthcare. Um, I have a different view. I say, what lessons can we learn? What gaps in the market are they filling? And how do we improve and innovate based on that? So I don't see it as an opportunity to learn and grow rather than a competitor per se. And what do you think, what should United States PT professionals learn from their Australian counterparts and, and the rest of the world for that matter? Yeah, look, I, I still think, and the board is working really hard on this, the the, um, the story on the value of physical therapy to the end user. Um, we know that prevention and wellness and exercise are not um, sexy messages. They're not, um, they're not the quick fix. It's not the quick pill. And in a a, a dopamine-fueled society now that we want the quick, uh, the quick like or the quick swipe, um, that's hard to sell. So um, it's really a, a, a long-reach message around how um, PT can be a, a really cradle-to-grave partner for life, for longevity, well-being and health, and how that message sticks to, to each generation. So if it's with the parents of paediatric patients or whether yourself as um, a, a, you know, a geriatric patient later in life and everything in between... Um, there's no um, healthcare professional that has that scope as much as PT does, in my view. Now, I am biased. And certainly musculoskeletal health, uh, which is the lion's share of PT. I know there's other, uh, there's other areas. But that is a big global burden. So making that connect with um, PT and the ability to give you a life worth living, um, both when you're young, and as you're going through teens, 20s, 30s, childbearing years and, and older, that message is not um, cut through. And we're competing with big pharma, competing with big medicine and, and big food. We need to get our marketing and, and social media skates on to really cut through that message. Yeah, absolutely. What do you think, uh, looking at your role that you've played here in the U.S., but also in other areas well, what, what makes a good board member? in reference to vision and guidance and counsel and so on. What, how do you see your role and, and uh, what can we learn from what, what you've been through your experience? I sit on several boards and one of the, the biggest temptation, particularly when you get a board seat and you've had some executive roles in organisations or companies, is that temptation to get into operational mode at the board table. Now, whilst some small little groups and community organisations and community boards may need that, a, a good board member there is for, for counsel, stewardship, guidance um, and advisory rather than telling the CEO or the management team what to do. And that's a really hard demarcation that some people find because they automatically go into um, executive mode at the board table. So my counsel is it is certainly, uh, it's different, it's a different mindset and you're not there to operate the business. You're there to future-proof and guide and lead the organisation from a, from a vision perspective. So what makes a good board member is to not 
to read the papers. That's certainly one. And I, and I sit on other boards um, that some people don't do that, so being prepared. But then actually you need to be the eyes and ears of the next three, five, ten years rather than looking at the day-to-day, month-to-month, um, you know, is the budget green or red? So having some foresight, having some understanding and a pulse of what's happening happening in the community and then applying that to your organisation, your role and how you can steward that, uh, that organisation into the future. I have a personal mantra is when you do something or when you connect with a group, you will want to leave that in a better place than what you found it. So even if it's 1% better, you can't make that position, organisation or group go backwards under your stewardship. So that's that's really a personal responsibility to contribute and, and leave the place better than what you found it. That's a great point. And, and I do think, uh, being on a few boards myself and so on, that when people do feel compelled to get down into the weeds and you know get too granular and get too, as you say, operational, um, it, it is frustrating because I don't think that's what the organization's really asking for. So, um, you know, I, I think you have to know how to be a good board member, and just because you uh, have a certain level of uh, success or uh, credentials in your profession, doesn't mean you're a good board member. I think it's just like anything else; you have to learn and and be open to how to be a better board member than just uh, you know coming in and, and trying to tell people how to do things. Exactly, and it doesn't it doesn't mean you've ever made it into a perfect board member either. You can still learn from uh, different people. You don't have to be um, like me now, have a big bit of grey hair or or, um, or losing your hair. I think we can learn so much from young people, the younger generation, the way they engage with their communities, the way they engage with um, technology, what's important to them. Clearly, there's a lot of um, you know, political issues um, across the world at the moment where there's a lot of activism. So understanding that and appreciating it, you don't have to agree, but you're certainly having an appreciation and understanding of where different perspectives are coming from helps inform you to be that sort of steward of your organisation. We, we touched on this a little earlier, but I want to dig into it a little deeper. Uh, you know, with a national association or organization like that, you know, how do you connect to members uh, so that they see the value in their membership in the organization? Because I, I do, you mentioned earlier, but I think that's the key, where if mm-hmm. I don't see the value in it, I'm not going to do it just because um, somebody tells me I should. I have to get some return on my investment, so to speak, or see the value in, in being a part of the, of the group or the tribe, as you said. So how do we do that from a communication perspective, and, and how do we keep, uh, I think you used the word, to storytelling. How do we use storytelling to get that message across? Yeah, look, I think um, the one-size-fits-all uh, one message across everyone simply doesn't work in a world where everything is so um, data-driven, segmented, uh, the algorithms take over of what you like. Um, so there, we're in a world of, of ultimate tailoring and, and personalization. And so that has to carry over in the way an association um, operates. Now, typically, uh, associations that have been around for 50, 100, 150 years are not geared that way. And so it's a different way of operating. So targeted and really personalised messaging on what your key audiences and your demographic uh, desires, what they need, what they value. And you can't do that without data, research and insight into your target. So if we know that 23-year-old female um, physical therapists uh, feel it's critically important to talk about um, the code of ethics, then you would tailor your messaging, your advocacy, your positioning, your marketing, your opportunities for engagement at committee level to that audience on the code of ethics. I'm just uh, giving you a a, 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 um, a hypothetical example. So you would tailor that, but you need the data to understand. You would then look at ways that they engage from a communication point of view. They rarely watch TV. Um, they are on their phones 90% of the day. They are in, into micro-messaging around Snapchat and TikTok. Um, they use artificial intelligence to help with paper writing. So these are the, 
the society trends you need to apply internally into your association to then look at your your communication strategy. So um, that's that's certainly one aspect. You certainly need a, the DNA or the glue that covers all that that messaging around the, the value piece, um, and that might be a more um, a more macro statement such as we're better together than apart or something like that. But then having um, several, if not um, dozens of uh, personalised and, and targeted messaging for all your different personas within your membership sphere um, and then certainly using those influences to help influence other people that aren't engaged. So that find, find member, find member model, um, we now call that influencers, um, you know, and that's, that's current speak for, for getting people engaged and involved using influencers in, in your sphere of influence um, for members to get new members or new PTs engaged is critical. And then finally for me is around how members um, or how PTs engage with their peak body. And again, the younger generation does not want to commit to a monthly committee meeting at 7 to 8 p.m. night time um, either at an office or on Zoom um, every month with an agenda, with minutes, with action items, with a work plan. Some people just have, I have um, 10 hours to give this month and that's all I want to do. So we need to structure the association or the work of the association in a way where volunteers can come in and out or members can come in and out without um, punishment, with, with uh, no barriers. And they feel that they've contributed, and so and that constitutes a member. So they may only pay um, five dollars, or for example, but they should be regarded as a member, and they should be regarded as a, a contributor and a volunteer and, and someone who gives value. So the typical way of engaging needs to change, and and so that's what we're trying to do at the APTA in terms of how do we get more people engaging on a different way, and it might be writing, it might be at a meeting, it might be at a on Capitol Hill, or it might even be helping with our social media. So I'm not trying to get you in trouble here, but uh, <laughs> are, is APTA doing, are they hitting their mark on this? Is it something that, uh, uh, you know, they're good at, or do they need a ways to go? Where, where are we at in what you just described? Oh, I don't think any association is, is great at this. Um, we recognise that we need to do better, and, and it's certainly a focus of the organisation. But it's also very hard. It's um, whilst I say all these things that we should be doing and could be doing, um, piloting and and trying different things and trying to turn around a you know a hundred year old organisation into sort of a contemporary modern day um, agile leopard can be quite difficult. So um, we identify we need to do work. We are moving in that direction. But are we perfect? No, of course not. But we certainly want to um, to improve and enhance and, and really looking at um, ways we can do that better. And we're always open to feedback, both from members, non-members. I think that's been the big difference in my tenure thus far is our attention to what are those non-members wanting or saying about us and how can we engage them? So of the 300,000-plus PTs in the States, um, we have roughly 100,000 engaged formally, what are the 200,000 saying? What are they wanting? How do we open our arms up a little bit more to them? You know, uh, uh, serving on these boards, uh, international boards, and also boards in, in Australia, um, you know, especially the nonprofits or the association model, how do you define your why in serving those leadership roles? Uh, I doubt you're getting rich by doing that. So, uh, uh, why do you do it, and and what's your uh, what's your motive behind that? Yeah, yeah it's a, it's a great question, um, and you know, quite often I am approached for for other roles as well. And and for me, if the purpose of the organisation resonates from a personal values perspective, so if they are about creating um, change in the community, having impact, having influence. Um, and generally, healthcare associations do do that because they represent people that are in amazing, influential positions where they can really change people's lives. So seeing that and being a small cog in that machine, um, and as I said, if you can leave, if you feel your skills can leave the organisation better than what, what you inherited, 
that's certainly a personal driver for me. And it's actually quite um, rewarding to watch post-service how the organisation um, flourishes or moves along or takes um, something that potentially you planted and how it moves on into the next iteration. And that's a very rewarding piece when you when you reflect and look back in the mirror of your service. So certainly um, I, I enjoy serving, I enjoy doing the, the public good, um, but also uh, from a biased point of view, healthcare tends to have that humanitarian aspect that really drives me personally. The U.S. is the only country that uses the term physical therapy instead of the more universal term physiotherapy. Do you think we should change and be consistent with the with that name and, and join the rest of the world, or what, what's your opinion coming from the outside on that issue? Yeah, again, joining the the profession in the um, you know over a decade ago, uh, it, it really surprised me that there were, wasn't a harmonisation of of the term of the profession. Um, and whilst I understand there's history and, and, and legacy around that, it certainly would be more of a, um, a stronger, compelling um, proposition uh, to have a to have a united profession that, that could do do that across the globe. But look, I recognise in different markets and different areas that um, there, there is a role for for the different jargon, different terminology. Um, I think that the, the broader question is how do you unite everyone under um, under that umbrella, or both physical therapy and, and physiotherapy, with what that key word or what that profession means in their markets, in their chosen audiences. And I think that is probably the the universal language that needs to be really spelt out. I know there's developing nations and, and developed nations of the profession. Some have two physiotherapists or physical therapists in their countries and others have hundreds of thousands. And we saw the name change from, you may know, the, the World Confederations, the WCPT went from the uh, World Confederation for Physical Therapy to World Physiotherapy. So they they have recognised as a, as a global peak to do that. I don't think it's probably a, a, a core thing that the APTA needs to look at. Um, it may be a, a supplementary thing in the future, but I, I think there's bigger things that we can do that have greater impact for the profession. And I think you have a unique uh, perspective in the sense that you know, you weren't trained as a physiotherapist. Um, you came more as a lay person, but now you have inter uh, an intimate relationship with the profession and, and the, the roles that you've served on. So from your perspective, do you think as a descriptor of the profession, what we do, do you think physiotherapy describes it better than physical therapy? Yeah, that's a good question. I've never thought of it that way, but certainly it's probably what you know and what you're comfortable with. And so the vernacular here is um, I'm going to see my physio or in elite sport, they are seeing the physio in the grandstands or, um, or uh, again, um, someone who's given birth and looking at um, postpartum going to get my physio treatment so it's probably uh, rolls off the tongue and probably from a social testing point of view it probably works better um, but as I said it goes back to what's known in your marketplace and your audience so certainly all, all Americans are aware of what physical therapy is potentially or what what it sort of is for the layperson so I think look in your own concentric circles first before we look at broader broader areas from a from a larger global branding piece as well. You know, uh, again, you have a unique perspective coming from your point of reference. So, you know, in a leadership role in managing and inspiring PTs and so on, do you think, uh, do you think they're any different than other organizations? Are physiotherapists and physical therapists uh, different in some way and you need to lead and inspire in different ways? Or do you think uh, um, they're not that uh, unusual? I'm generalising, but I think there's certainly a, um, a conservative nature to the profession, certainly what I've seen in Australia. But th that is changing as um, the younger generations are coming through. I, I think, uh, again, probably generalising a lot, they're not um, the ones to, to go out and lead from the front. And we certainly, like any profession, have a bell curve of, of great innovators, leaders, tech leaders and the like. But I would, I would categorise the vast majority as um, very, very good at what they do. Um, 
but almost have a, an imposter syndrome in, in the health system to say, look, I uh, potentially don't belong here, which I think is, I think is sad. And I don't know if that's wired in at education level or whether um, that opportunity to lead and, and really innovate is, is knocked out of them <laughs> through the, the knots of life as they go through their career. Um, I'm not suggesting we don't have some amazing leaders and, and people that really want to uh, be a, a strong part of, of this profession. But generally speaking, I think that's a fair description, Steve, of being more um, conservative, um, uh, uh, probably followers. Um, and I think we need... Uh, my, a former president used to say to me, this is a very Australian thing, but we need more mongreliness, Chris, which means a little bit of um, a, a bit of street fight, a bit of street cred, and, and, and actually putting us first and ahead of the curve instead of falling under... Um, the big lobby groups, so in here, whether it's the AMA, the Medical Association or the Pharmacy Guild, um, let's get physio, PT, first and foremost, in front of government, in front of funders, in front of policymakers. I think it's really interesting talking with another guest on a previous episode, and, you know, the thing that goes across every profession, and especially, you know, ours as well, because we know it the best, but you know, is, is leadership and, and how to lead people and how to promote what you do and how to communicate and all that. Yet, it might be the least taught thing in our preparation to be professionals. So, um, you know, you look back on that and you think, gosh, you know, should we be doing a better job of, of teaching leadership and communication and doing things like that? I mean, we're working with patients on a one-on-one -on -one basis. We're trying to advocate, uh, you know, for our services and, and what we do and the people we treat. Uh, there's certainly a lot of leadership skills required to be really good at that, yet we don't seem to take the time and effort to teach it as much as we do some of the other aspects of becoming a physiotherapist and physical therapist. Look, that's certainly the case in, in many professions, and I, I would, I would, Council to you don't need the leader title to be a leader, and this is when I do speaking at, at, at universities or at conferences. You don't need to be bestowed a title. Uh, leading comes from within, and um, you're always learning. Life is a great teacher of of leading. So whether um, you're a brother or a sister or, or a parent, or even looking after older um, older parents. Um, there's all characteristics and elements of, of leadership and leading in day-to-day in -day situations. I think we're quick to formalise leadership to say, I've done my Harvard course or whatever and I've ticked that box and now I can be a leader. Um, leadership is, is constant, it's evolving, it's, it needs to be adaptive and, and situational to what you need. So my, my counsel always to, to young physios and PTs is um, embrace it, uh, own it, be part of it, contribute. Don't necessarily be asked to step up or to be the team leader, team manager or uh, a leader in your setting. Um, lead, lead by example. So if that means doing something very, very small that is different but creates value, that's leadership. So... I think we don't recognise those micro-leadership qualities or activities enough. And, and again, my message on this podcast is um, leadership is a mindset. It's not a title or a, or a position. So everyone has the opportunity or uh, the ability to lead. It's whether you want to and, and how you frame your situation to be part of that. I couldn't agree more. That was very well said. You know, do you have an idea, again, it's, I think we learn from comparison and contrasts, contrasts and so on between the countries. I, uh, do, you, do you have a feel for the way that the general public in America looks at physical therapists versus the general public looks at physiotherapists in Australia? And I'll, I'll just give you an example. I live here in the Seattle area, and Vancouver, British Columbia is very close, as you know, as, and Whistler um, is a ski area. And it's very common to be on a ski lift and up at Whistler and hear somebody say, oh, I tweaked my knee the other day or I, I fell and I did this. I got to get to my physio, which I think is, is the common you know, language. Yet I think sometimes in America, that same person would probably say, I got to get to my doctor. 
and so um, meeting an MD. So it, I yeah. think it's it's an interesting perspective, and I'm just curious as to what your experience has been, and do you see that the public looks at our professions different in that way? No, I'd, I'd like to think so, but I still think that the general masses or the, the majority um, and it's whether it's socially, um, you know, engineered or, or even just influenced from generation to generation. There's that concept of we're going to the ER because the doctor knows best. And whatever it is, if it's, as I said earlier, musculoskeletal injury or something, no, I have to go see the doctor. Um, and I think that's just an ingrained uh, historical mentality that that is part of um, the consumers of healthcare. However, when you do experience physical therapy and a favourable outcome, you are then well informed on um, a next intervention or a next service you require, and that's where the believers come in. So, going back to our you know messaging and marketing, it it, it will take generations of, of influence to give the end user the, the opportunity to make that choice and to say, look, for what I have here, taking care of my health, um, I need the best person at the best time um, for, the, for the condition that I have. And we need to make that connection. But it's very difficult when you're battling, you know, big lobby groups and, and big government and, and dollars spending on, on influencing decisions. So um, I'd love to say it's different, but I think... Um, if I was to look at the general population, certainly a doctor-first mentality is probably the default setting in both markets. Now, I'm sure that you're aware that uh, uh, physical therapists um, in the U.S. are, are very social and love their conferences mm -hmm. and love their uh, mm -hmm. get-togethers. And and uh, but also know that in Australia, um, you know, you guys like to to party too. So. Uh, where are the better parties? Are, are the Americans better or the Australians better? What, what are the differences? Uh, this was, I recall, my first ever conference um, at in Australia. And people had warned me and said, look, Chris, you need to understand that they uh, physios are very social beings. And I said, yeah, sure, no problem. Um, and I, like any other conference, I assumed that that was just, you know, like a, a rite of passage. But oh my goodness, um, that, on, and particularly the world stage at World Physiotherapy Conferences as well, just the ability to <laughs> have a good time and party. But I am going to say I think the, the bigger, grander, um, more fun that is certainly in the US. I think Australia can hold their own, but um, just the sheer scale and the, the wild times that, um, that some <laughs> PTs have have been in, ingrained in my memory. So I'll have to give the US a, a score on of that one. <laughs> That's great. Now, I also understand that you're quite a sports guy. So uh, um, I was hoping to talk about Women's World Cup and, and the U.S. still going strong, but uh, they lost the other day. So uh, we're out. Yeah, but uh, one lucky. Um, look, certainly, um, uh, yeah, uh, losing on penalties. I think it was penalties, was it? Oh, yes, sure. it was penalty um, kicks, yeah. As we're recording this, um, the Matildas have just uh, entered into the quarterfinals. So that's we're very proud here of our women's um, soccer team. And it's a great tournament. It's spread across Australia and New Zealand, um, this cycle. And uh, the public are really uh, embracing the, the, the women's football. So that's that's a great thing for, for world sport. That is wonderful. I have a story that when I did travel to Australia about, um, it's probably been a decade ago, uh, we flew into Melbourne, um, and I and I know that's where you're, you're, you are now. And and uh, we got in, you know, early morning, and, and went to the hotel and hoped that we could check in early because we were jet lagged and whatever. And the guy behind the desk just laughed, and he says, "No, he says, uh, you don't understand, but um, our Australian Football League had it had its championship game last night in Melbourne. It's like your Super Bowl." And so I guarantee you, no one will be leaving their rooms early today. <laughs> so wow, we, uh, we definitely, yeah, all the days, of yeah, all the days to land all in the day. So we definitely <laughs> had to find a lot of uh, sightseeing things and trying to stay awake and waiting for a room. But uh, yeah, it was a, it was a long day. Uh, uh, poor timing and an uninformed uh, traveler showing up on the wrong day. That's for sure. Uh, it would have been a good time in Melbourne, but yeah, certainly that day was not ideal for an early check-in. <laughs> yeah. 
So, uh, Chris, in anticipation of our uh, discussion today, um, is there anything that I haven't asked you or anything you want to be sure to get in the, the program that you'd, you'd like to uh, say? No, I think we've had a great discussion. We've covered a, a whole range of things around the profession, around associations, around leadership. Um, but look, just a, a takeaway message for everyone is, is uh, we're all leaders at some stage. We don't need that title, as I said earlier. So, um, you know, give yourself a, a break sometimes, give yourself a, a leadership mindset, and I think we will, we, everyone will flourish if, um, if they take that advice. At this time of the interview, I always ask my guests the same common question. And so uh, that question is, in relation to leadership, what is a pearl of wisdom that you could leave us with today? The, the pearl of wisdom, be yourself. Don't be um, a leader that um, you have looked up to. Don't be another person. When I um, quite often look at people taking on new CEO roles I, and, and they come to me for guidance, they say, well, how should I be? I said, be, be yourself. People have chosen you or selected you and put your leadership stamp on it. We don't have to be robots. We don't have to be the same. We be ourselves because we all bring a unique perspective to leadership. Well said. You know, in preparing for this, I did ask a few people who do know you, and they told me, uh, be prepared. I'm probably going to hear the word mate quite a few times. You didn't say it one time during the whole interview. <laughs> yeah. Yes, uh, I, I have a tendency to do that um, with my Australianism. So, um, <laughs> no, it's been a great chat, mate, so I can end off with that. Yeah. Well, Chris, this has been a real pleasure. Um, I've heard wonderful things that you're doing with the APT board, and your presence on that board has been valued. and. A lot of people just uh, feel it's, it's been extremely helpful. So thank you for that. And um, I think your journey is an interesting one. And, and uh, uh, even though you're, you're not a trained physiotherapist, we'll, we'll uh, embrace you and call you one of our own. So thanks for all you've done for the profession. And I really enjoy talking with you today. Uh, thank you, Steve. It's a great privilege to serve. And uh, thank you for the opportunity to chat. Okay. Take care and uh, have a good rest of your day. Thank you, Steve. Thank you for listening to another episode of Profiles in Leadership. To listen to all my interviews, subscribe to Profiles in Leadership with Steve Anderson on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, and many other popular podcast platforms. Some of these interviews are on video, and you can search YouTube for Profiles in Leadership with Steve Anderson. You can also access the entire library of interviews on my website, orange.coaching.com and that is orange the word.coaching.com and go to the media center and click on podcasts or video gallery you can also enter the website from pilpodcast.com